better wait till you hear what I have to say before you clap. Thank you. Uh, morning, North Church. Well, what I'm going to do today is continue on a series of messages that I started uh, six months ago, um, and uh, which I believe God is giving me to <clears throat> make, basically take around, uh, basically for the whole church, not just North Church, but for the, the whole church. And uh, so best place to start is to just give a bit of a recap of uh, where our journey is so far. So this will be the fourth message in the series. Some of you will have heard the previous messages, some of you uh, won't. But basically, the general theme of what I believe God has me say is that God, at the current time, is demanding a holy church. He's not asking, he's not begging, he's not doing anything like that. He's actually demanding something of his people. The context of, uh, of why he is doing this is, I believe, that we are living in unique times where God is actually overthrowing powers and authorities in the world, uh, something that hasn't been done for hundreds of years. And in particular, what he's doing is he's breaking the power of Western society, in, in, in particular, the, uh, the, the link, the bondage between the Christian church in the West and society. So the basic re relationship between church and state that we have all grown up in is being demolished, smashed. Um, the picture I've had, uh, as I've shared, is um, a picture of a, a if, if you see on the internet, there's pictures of uh, glaciers that overturn in the ocean. You know how a glacier is 90% under the ground, so when the glacier overturns, there's a huge ruction sent out and, and, uh, and waves go in all directions of, that, that are actually quite destructive. And so what the picture I have is that the waves that we see in our society, which, uh, you know, COVID-19, um, political uh, issues going on in America, war in, and, and, and the threat of uh, escalation of war in Europe, all of these things are part of the shockwaves of what God is actually doing. And it's in that context that God requires us, his people, to press in close to him because as things change, and they're going, I believe they're going to get stronger, then we need to actually know where we stand with God and be able to cope with what's going on. So that was the basic theme. Um, I elaborated in the second message where I said that the key to understanding what God was doing and why he was doing it is because so much of the Western church has fallen into a trap of idolatry. That is, worshipping God in name, but actually... Um, attributing to God their own wishes and desires rather than the way God really is. Uh, and when we do that, um, it's the fundamental sin in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. When people do that, what we do is we rob God of his glory because his glory consists in who he is and the revelation of who he is. And when the church and when people that uh, claim to be worshipping him make God out to be less than he is by making God in their own image, we rob God of his glory by stopping him from revealing the truth about who he really is. So we then moved on and said uh, um, how, what our response needs to be in that situation. And we said that the response needs to be that we need to choose to live for God's glory, whatever the cost, because our desire as Christians ought to be to show God for who he really is, to reveal his glory to the world, to be part of what he wants to do so that people can come into his, into his kingdom. And so we need to, uh, to, uh, to live uh, for God's glory, whatever the cost. 
Now, question then is, where do we go from here? What's number four? The interesting thing is that each message has sort of written itself for me in this series because each one seemed to me to lead automatically into the next one. And where we're going here is somewhere which, as I studied the subject of the glory of God, I found myself realising that there was one aspect of that which is very obvious in the scripture when you actually look at the subject of glory. But I don't think I've ever heard it preached on. In fact, in this series, I'm finding I'm going into areas where I don't know that I've ever heard anybody in my 40 years as a Christian really talk about. I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about idolatry. I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about what it means to live for the glory of God. Well, where we're going now is somewhere which is going to be, uh, again, somewhere new that I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about, which is surprising because it's there in black and white, very clear in the scripture. It's one of those things that we tacitly uh, tend to ignore, but it's there and that we need to face up to it. So let's pray, shall we, before we discuss what it is. Heavenly Father, give us ears to hear what you are saying. Give us ears to hear what the scripture is saying to us, Father. Give us ears to hear what it means, what the cost is that we're going to have to pay if we're going to live for your glory so that your name might be magnified and glorified in this earth. So we open our hearts up to you and we ask you to give us ears to hear what you are saying. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what I want to talk about is found in a verse in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, which is, as you may know, chapter 8 of Romans is a chapter which is uh, fundamental to, uh, to Paul's understanding of the victorious life in Christ. In most of our Bibles, you'll see that it actually says, as the heading of this, of this section, this whole chapter, the victorious life of the Spirit or something like that. So it's a passage which is very popular um, in, uh, in, uh, in Christian circles, especially in charismatic Christian circles. Um, the verse I'm reading is right in the middle of that. And here's what Paul says in Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 17. He says, now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Now, who believes that they're a child of God and an heir of God? I believe that. We all believe that. So if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Hello? If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Now, that little word there, if indeed, there's two, two things I want to point out about this verse before we go on to elaborate a bit. The word if indeed, um, in, in the Greek language, there's a number of different conditions, way in which conditional phrases, you know, the if clause can be expressed. Um, it's a very complicated language. But the word used here, which is translated if indeed, implies that the answer is yes. It, 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 it's not saying it's just something that is doubtful. It's talking about something which is certainly happening. So a good way of translating it would be to say, if, as is certainly the case, we share in his sufferings, right? So he's not suggesting that there's any doubt that Christians share in the sufferings. He's saying, if indeed this is true, we all know it's true, we share in his sufferings. And the second one is that little word there, in order that, which implies cause and effect. 
So what Paul is saying here is two things which are very unpopular today and which go against the grain of what a lot of us have been taught, which is this. First thing is, is if you are a Christian, it is a certain fact that you will suffer. You will share in his sufferings. And secondly, it says something even more dramatic. It says there's a purpose behind your suffering because you suffer with him in order that, as a condition of the fact, that one day you will be glorified with him. So what I'm talking about here, this, the, the topic I've called it is glory through suffering. Now, this is, I said, in fact, this is such an important theme for Paul that the rest of the chapter, which we like to quote, is actually an elaboration of this theme. Now, we don't quote it as such, but there's several verses in the next uh, uh, 22 verses of Romans 8 which are commonly quoted to encourage people, you know, all things work together for good, you know, we are more than overcomers, all those sorts of things. And we, you know, and we love to quote them and stuff like that. But it's interesting that in Paul's thinking, they are all related to an elaboration of this theme, the theme of suffering in order to, re to reach glory. So... What we, need, what we need to do is understand what Paul is saying and the links in there, uh, as to, to, to what the link is between our suffering and our glory and what that means in terms of how we're to live our lives. So if we go to the next slide, what I'm going to be covering today, first of all, I want to cover two wrong attitudes to suffering, which are co quite common, so we'll deal with them at first up. Uh, secondly, ask the basic question, why do we suffer? Now, I want to stay up front. I'm not going to actually deal in detail. There's so much in this topic that could be covered. I'm not going to deal in detail the, the most common issue that is talked about in suffering, which is basically the, what the, the scholars call the problem of theodicy, which is the question of, you know, if God is good and all-powerful, why is there suffering? You know, that's, that's been covered many, many times. I'm not going to really talk about that except superficially. Um, if that's a question for you, I, all I can do is suggest... The best book I know on the subject is The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. So if that's an issue for you, I suggest you go and get a copy of that book or look for it online. So I'm not going to be covering that in detail. That's not where God is leading us on this. But we do need to cover briefly why we suffer. We then need to cover the topic of what Paul means when he says sharing in Christ's sufferings. And finally, in terms of the practical application of this, we're going to be looking, albeit briefly, at the rest of chapter 8 of Romans which I'm called Paul's Theology of Suffering. So in other words, how he understands suffering um, and how that fits in with the way we are to live our lives and the attitudes. Okay, so I'm not sure how, uh, how long it's going to take. I'm going to have to skim through a lot of the material, unfortunately, but we'll see how we go. Okay, the first thing, simply two wrong attitudes to suffering. Um, if you know anything about church history, you know that uh, for the last... 1,600 years, the church has been um, controlled by some fairly negative attitudes uh, in a lot of things caused by traditional religiosity and all of that sort of thing. And one of those is concerns the issue of suffering, where church hierarchies for hundreds of years basically taught us the attitude towards suffering, which I call the wallowing attitude. The wallowing attitude is basically the attitude which says... Uh, well, suffering is actually good for my soul because I'm just a miserable sinner, I'm a worm, and nothing good should ever happen to me. In fact, 
I expect I should suffer, and if I do suffer, that's only what I deserve. Basically, this attitude tries to convince itself that suffering is good. Um, now, that's a pretty silly attitude because, by very definition, suffering is not good. Right? The word, very word implies something bad. It's very hard to convince yourself that something that's so obviously bad is good. Um, and there are obvious reasons why, I guess if you, if you want to uh, analyse it politically, why the church, uh, which was uh, a political power for all of the Middle Ages, why it found it beneficial to actually keep people under their thumb by uh, convincing the poor masses that... Uh, that there was, it was God's will that they were poor and sick and everything because it made it easy to control them. You know, you can, but we could go into that. But basically, that's the first attitude I want to I want to point out is that you know we're not talking a correct attitude to suffering does not involve believing that suffering is good and that we deserve it and all of those sort of things so that we should just lay down and and be miserable under our suffering. But towards the end of the 20th century, there was a reaction set into that which I call the reaction of denying it. And what I mean by denial is the attitude which basically says that if we really had enough faith, if I just had a little bit more faith, then I wouldn't have to suffer at all. So whether we're, and we're, and we're talking suffering in general, so whether we're talking about physical sickness, emotional sickness, mental illness, whether we're talking about poverty or relationships falling apart, all of the things that we might generally call suffering. There's a movement within the church which says that suffering can be overcome if only we had a little bit more faith. Well, again, that doesn't fit in with what Paul is saying here in Romans 8, where he definitely talks about the fact that suffering is necessary. It's a part of life. So, what is the correct attitude? What's the balance between these two? Well, the thing is, the balance that I believe we have, and there are so many questions I have myself, I don't have necessarily answers in detail to all the questions here, because I think there's a, there's a, a range of views that, that, uh, where the truth lies in. But basically, um, the balance I believe in the New Testament is that suffering is intrinsically bad, whatever the form of suffering you go through, whether it be physical illness, whether it be emotional pain, relationships, whatever it might be. So suffering is bad, and therefore, you should do everything in your power to overcome that suffering. So it might mean medicine, it might mean prayer, or certainly will mean prayer, it might mean counselling. All of these things you should validly do in order to try and overcome and relieve yourself of, and people you love of suffering. However, and this is the balance that we need to have, when all is said and done, there will be, after all of those things, a residual level of suffering in your life uh, which you will experience. And it is that level that we need to actually uh, look for and, 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 and uh, attain a, a godly attitude towards. Okay, let's move on to the next point. Why do we suffer? Well, as I said... I'm not going to go into the whole details of the, you know, detail of, of, of why, if God is good, there is suffering in the world. The simple answer is um, that suffering entered the world as a result of sin, uh, and 
that's part of the, you know, that the world was designed to work in a certain way. When sin entered the world, it stopped working in that way and therefore suffering entered in. But the world, but we are now forgiven. Forgiveness has now come through the cross. So the question then remains, well, why does suffering remain? If the sin that caused the suffering has gone, has been dealt with, why does suffering remain? And why do we still need to suffer? Now, what we need to understand here is that the kingdom of God has come, but it's come in a now, but not yet sense. Essentially speaking, the kingdom of God, God's rule on the earth, has come in a spiritual sense, in our inner being, but in a physical sense, it is not yet. It won't arrive until Jesus returns. So there's this uh, tension between the physical and the spiritual, right? So that we live in one dimension in the spiritual realm, we live in the kingdom of God. But in the physical realm, we're still subject to the laws of this world, which means that, I mean, at very least, it means that unless Jesus returns, each one of us will one day die. And generally dying is usually involves suffering at one level or another, right? So at the simple level, that's why suffering exists. But then you've got to go deeper and say, well, okay, why do we suffer as believers? Um, what's, God could have released, you know, now that we've been forgiven and become part of his kingdom, why do we have to go through this whole realm of suffering? Um, why couldn't God just have whisked us away or made us exempt from suffering so that, um, so that we wouldn't have to go through that pain? Or putting it in another way, the way uh, uh, that, that I talked about a few minutes ago, why could he not have made it so that just by having faith, we would always get that miracle that would answer our, our need, that, uh, you know, that we would never be poor, that our wealth would overflow? I mean, surely that would be a great witness for the world, yeah, although that's if, if, if believers were so much different. Well, let me suggest, can we go on the next slide, guys? Uh, is that right? No, previous, no, uh, yeah, yeah, next one. Enter? Yeah, that's right. I want to suggest five reasons from the New Testament why we as Christians specifically uh, need to suffer. The first is to keep us grounded. Uh, 2 Corinthians 12, uh, there talks about Paul's thorn in the flesh, where Paul uh, says, Paul says that uh, he had surprisingly great revelations of God, he was taken up into the seventh heaven where he, he experienced things so profound that he's unable to speak about them. And he says, to stop me from becoming proud, I was given a painful thorn in the flesh. We're not told exactly what it was, but whatever it was, it was so painful that he prayed several times to have it be relieved. And the context clearly shows that Paul needed this suffering to keep him grounded. But if he he basically experienced the glory of God. And remember, that's God's goal. He wants to reveal his glory in us. Um, but if God's going to reveal his glory in us, then we need to be grounded. Otherwise, pride will set in, and pride is more, de more destructive and deceptive than anything else. So that's the first reason we need to keep us grounded. The second thing is that suffering builds character and shows us what our true priorities are. What I mean by that is it builds character um, that's in uh, Romans uh, 5 there, that, uh, that uh, 
trials and tribulations or suffering produces patience. Take a bit of advice from an old guy like me. Don't ever pray for patience unless you're serious. Because how does patience come? Through suffering. So if you pray for patience, you're praying for suffering. Take a bit of a... Only, do, only make that prayer if you're serious about wanting patience. But suffering produces character. But not only that, when we suffer, it shows us and shows others what our true priorities are. Because if you, have to, if you set out to achieve a goal, it's a bit like if you're an athlete. Um, you know, if you want to become an elite athlete, you have to train. You have to push your body to the limits. If you say to yourself, I want to be an elite athlete, but I'm going to sleep in until 10 o'clock and drink a few beers and then go out and play a game of football, you're not going to become an elite athlete, are you? You've got to push your body to the limits in order to achieve the maximum potential. And so what you're prepared to suffer and go through is a demonstration of how, how important something is to you, right? So if you're serious about living for the glory of God, then suffering is what we go through. What we're prepared to go through in order to achieve that is the demonstration of how high a priority it is for us. Uh, thirdly, suffering gives us common ground with those we serve. We're here in the world to serve the lost, right? People in the world, lost world, they suffer. Sometimes they suffer because of their own sins, sometimes because of other people's sins, all sorts of reasons why suffering is there. We have to suffer with them in order to, to build common ground with them. Right? Uh, fourthly, we suffer because Jesus suffered. Hebrews 2.10 talks about Jesus suffering because in the way he lived his life. Um, you know, it'd be interesting. So, so many Christians seem to me to have the attitude that uh, that Jesus suffered so that we wouldn't have to suffer. You know, but it doesn't work that way. Jesus suffered to give us the privilege of suffering with Him, of sharing that fellowship with Him. If we serve a Lord who suffered, then we need to suffer with Him. And fifthly, and this is, I think, is a very important point. Because suffering is actually part of our ultimate glory. Right? What I mean by that is that if we go forward in time 10,000 years, assuming that all of us here are, uh, persist in following the Lord and seeking his glory, we will all be glorified with Christ. Right? But incorporate it within that glory. It won't be a different you to the what you are now. It'll be the same you that is sitting here in this room. And therefore, every experience that you have in life will be redeemed. So the good, the bad, the ugly, the things that you suffered will all be part of that glory. Right? We're told in the book of Revelation that Jesus, in his post-resurrection state, still had the marks of the cross in his hands and in his feet. Right? What we suffer is part of our eternal identity. You know, we'll be talking to each other in 10,000 years and we won't be pretending that life was a bed of roses. We'll be saying to each other, how was life for you? Oh, I really suffered this, but this is what I gained through it. You know, 
I was transformed by God in this way, and now looking back, I can see how wonderful it was, even though it was terribly hard at the time. So every aspect of our life is going to be redeemed and incorporated in our eternal destiny. So we need to learn how to process that. Okay. Next point. Paul talks in this passage about us sharing in Christ's sufferings. This is a way, an extraordinary way, in which we as Christians suffer that is not actually available to unbelievers. In other words, there is a sense in which we as Christians suffer more than those that don't follow Christ. Sharing in Christ's sufferings is actually a privilege which is only available to disciples, but it builds unsurpassed intimacy with Jesus if we suffer in the same way as Jesus and for the same reasons as he suffered. If we suffer in the same way as he suffered and for the same reasons. Uh, this is obviously a theme that was very important in Paul's personal life. Do you remember on the, in, in Acts chapter 9, when he first encountered Jesus on the Damascus Road, Jesus said to him, I will show this man how much he has to suffer for my name's sake. Right? So Paul, from the very start of his faith, was told that he needed to suffer with Jesus. In Colossians 1.24, he says something quite extraordinary, really. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. He says that, he said, uh, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Now, Paul, that's pretty funny theology. What is lacking in Christ's sufferings? Are you saying the cross wasn't enough? No, obviously the cross was enough to bring salvation. But he's saying that there was a gap because Christ suffered, but he needs people to go on suffering now to continue the work. And he says, therefore, my suffering is actually helping to fulfill what was lacking. An extraordinary attitude. Extraordinary attitude. Well, how do we share in Christ's sufferings? When we uh, share in Christ's sufferings, we are blessed and we need to rejoice. But how did Christ actually suffer? Well, the obvious answer is to say that Christ suffered on the cross. Pretty basic stuff, isn't it? I mean, we certainly know how, how much pain it was, and, and that equates in our case to uh, the possibility of persecution. But, you know, Christ's sufferings actually started before then. Do you know when Christ's suffering started? It started when he came to earth, because he didn't have to. Right? Think about it this, right? What was Christ's attitude? He suffered because, first of all, he loved sinners deeply. He loved you and me. He didn't have to. It was his character to love. When you love somebody who doesn't love you back, that hurts. If any of you who are parents who have children that, uh, that treat you badly, you know the pain of loving and not being loved in return. Jesus experienced that suffering 
because he loved sinners. But not only that, he loved them, and because he loved them, he chose to come. He, ch- he chose to come. He didn't have to come. He came from heaven where he was safe and secure, comfortable, if you like, to a world which was going to reject him, and he knew that from the start. And yet because of his love, he chose to come. And not only did he choose to come, he chose to serve. He chose to serve those that were going to reject him. Now, what I'm suggesting is that our role as Christians in this world is to be the presence of Christ in exactly the same way. And that means that it's our privilege to suffer with him in exactly the same way. It is our calling to love sinners, to love those who will not love us in return, to give ourselves freely to them because they need it. It is our duty to go to the sinners, to go to places where we may not feel comfortable, where sin is going to be the dominating force, where it's going to be uncomfortable, possibly even dangerous. And not only to go to sinners, we are called to serve them, to lay down our lives before them in order that we might show the love of God. Now, none of us can bear the whole burden of Christ. It's too big. But each one of us is given a part of that burden. So the sinners that you are called to go to may be different to the sinners that I am called to go to. But we're each called to love the sinners that we're called to to serve and to go there and to serve them. Uh, Those who were here a couple of weeks ago know I talked about Jeremiah. How Jeremiah was called to preach a message for 40 years that nobody believed. And when it finally came true, they executed him for being a traitor. But when he was given the opportunity of leaving and taking a, a cushy retirement, he chose not to. He chose to stay with the people that he'd been called to serve. That's what it means to be in the kingdom of God, to find the people that you are called to serve and to go to them and serve them. And that is suffering. There is no two ways about it. If you live in that way, you will suffer. Different ways, mental ways, psychological ways, you will suffer the same way that Jesus suffered. But you will also build such an incredible intimacy with Christ that the glory that will result from that is beyond measure. So the first way in which we share in Christ's sufferings is to simply go. In fact, it's actually interesting psychologically, you know, that it is so easy as Christians to justify not going to sinners by saying, oh, they don't deserve it. I mean, think about, for example, I know it's a controversial issue politically, but think about the attitude we have in society, not necessarily in the church, but in society towards refugees often. You know, we don't like the fact that these refugees are coming to our country. So, you know, the common attitude in society is, oh, maybe they're all terrorists. Now, we know they're not all terrorists. I mean, there might be one or two amongst them, but we we know that basically the refugees that are coming are not evil people. They're just normal humans like you and me. But why do we think that? Because if we think that, it makes it easy to justify why we don't go and serve them. If, we, if at any stage we actually 
dared to think that they're normal human beings like you and me with normal needs, then we would be full of compassion and we would be required to act. So we don't like that as a society. And I'm not saying each one of us are like that, but you know, but that's the way society thinks. It, it gives us an excuse not to love them. If we can actually demonise the people that have need, then we don't have to serve them. But I'm saying we need to live above that as Christians. Jesus lives above that. We need to live with him. Okay, so that's the first way in which uh, Jesus suffered. The second way in which Jesus suffered is uh, through persecution, the cross. Now, being persecuted for the sake of the faith is, without doubt, the greatest privilege that is possible for a believer. Uh, But it all depends upon whether our suffering is actually for Jesus' sake or not. It's rather interesting. Um, You go back in history in the the first three centuries of the church, there was a lot of persecution of the church. And a lot of of Christians, if you read the history books, actually went out of their way to try and... uh, They fancied the idea of the rewards available for martyrdom, so they actually tried to... Uh, tried to force the hand and, and make themselves be persecuted. Believe it or not, they actually liked the idea of, uh, of being burnt at the stake or thrown to the lion. So much so that the uh, that the early church had to develop a set of rules about um, what constituted suffering for the sake of Christ. But actually, the, the, those those rules or principles were actually laid before us in the book of First Peter. Um, not all suffering, because you are a Christian, is suffering for Jesus' sake. 1 Peter was written to a church that was suffering, and if you, I'll only go through this bit briefly, but uh, Peter uh, goes through the conditions of what it means to suffer for Christ's sake. The first condition is found in verse 2.11, where Peter says that we must be living as foreigners and exiles in this world. In other words, that we have to be in a place where we understand that our identity is in heaven, not on earth. So we're not actually living in a way where we're trying to maximise our benefit on earth, we actually live it beyond the, the benefit, so we're actually prepared to live at a higher level than the mere physical. Uh, and I think a lot of Christians today don't have that, 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 uh, that thinking, that mentality. The second thing is that we have to have words and actions which are, which are, uh, which are inconsistent. So our words need to be consistent with Jesus, um, but our actions, our attitude needs to be one of love and service. And our actions need to match our words. So if, if the reason why people are criticising us is because we're hypocrites, then that doesn't count as suffering for Christ's sake. Um, third thing, and this is an interesting one as well, I think that the, uh, some of the things that have happened in the last few years really uh, highlight this need. The third point that Peter makes is that we need to be in submission to worldly authorities. Uh, if we are not living, if we are living as citizens of heaven, then our, ownership, our citizenship is not, in earth, not on the earth, then we need to, to be in submission to the authorities God has established, even when those authorities are bad. I mean, this is, you know, it takes a lot of uh, unpacking to work out exactly what this means in a modern context. But Peter said, for example, he said slaves, right, and we don't have slaves today, but there were slaves in Peter's day, he said, be in submission to your masters for the sake of the gospel, even when your masters are bad. Have you imagined what a bad master could do to you if you're a slave? 
In the Roman Empire, slaves, masters had the right of life and death over their slaves. Peter says, don't fight back. Be in submission to your masters, even if they're bad, for the sake of the gospel. And if you do that, you will be blessed. Again, there's a lot of unpacking we need to do in the modern world to understand what that means, but there's a principle that uh, it certainly means that we don't have the right to violate the law just because we don't like it. If certain laws are in direct opposition to the gospel, to the requirements of God, then yes, you know, we can do it, but it's got to be pretty blatant. Right? It's not a matter of just, I don't happen to like that particular law. It doesn't fit in with my theology or it doesn't fit in with my particular desires for my life, right? because we don't belong here, we belong in heaven. Fourth point that Peter makes is that our suffering must not be because we are criminals or even, I love this word, meddlers. <clears throat> What's a meddler? Someone that shoves their oar into somebody else's life where it's not wanted. If I walk, <laughs> I'll tell a story against myself, when I was a young Christian, we used to go witnessing on the streets and we'd have conversations with people full of zeal where we'd basically say, are you Christians? Uh, and they'd probably say, oh, and some answer, some answer. And eventually the conversation would lead to them saying, well, if you're not a Christian, bad luck, you're going to go to hell. And then, obviously, that leads to a bit of antagonism. <laughs> now, is that suffering for Christ's sake or is that suffering because of meddling? I certainly wouldn't behave like that these days. And yet a lot of Christians these days seem to think that we have a right to make public statements about people that we don't know anything about them personally, uh, judgmental statements, and that when they push back and say, I don't like that, that somehow it means we've suffered. Well, yeah, we've suffered because we've meddled. We're not suffering because we've been wise and, and served them the way God served them. And finally... The final condition in, in 1 Peter for persecution is that when we're attacked, and whether that means emotionally or with words or, or actions, we don't retaliate, but we bless those who attack us. Peter says that if we suffer under these circumstances, we are blessed. And again, see the, the, common, uh, the combination of the ideas here? The spirit of glory rests upon us. I've had that experience once in my life. Um, amazing experience. There was no way that I could have done anything else apart from bless. I was under such an anointing of the Spirit when I was being attacked. But God promises that that's what happens when we follow the textbook on how to suffer. Then that is how we are to live. So if we suffer under these circumstances, we are blessed and the Spirit of glory rests upon us. Okay, let's go now to our Final section, we've only got a few minutes, so I'll run through this relatively quickly. How then should we respond to <clears throat> suffering when we experience it? Whether it be suffering for Christ's sake, persecution, whether it be just the normal run-of-the-mill suffering because of uh, sickness or disease or loss or whatever. Well, I want to run through quickly Paul's theology of suffering found in the rest of Romans 8. And I said, many of these verses you'll be familiar with, but... As you'll see as we read them out, the context is all about how we respond to suffering, and we miss that often. So let's have a look. The first verse that we see is that Paul says, 
I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, the word up there, I consider, is the Greek word logizomai, which basically comes from the word logic. It's a rational process. What Paul is saying is that we need to take a rational faith approach and think about this and say, really, what we are suffering, considering what, we are, what it's going to lead to, which is our glorification with Christ, how do they balance? The answer is they don't compare. It doesn't matter what suffering you're going through, the glory that you will experience at the end of it is so much incomparably more. So that's the first attitude we need to take. Okay, let's now go on to the next few verses. The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So that's basically a statement of the idea that um, sin entered the world and suffering entered the world through sin. And... There's a solution to that, but it's only partially implemented when Jesus rose from the dead and, it, and creation is wait, will not actually be redeemed until Jesus returns and all the suffering will go. But, so that's all, all that means. And then Paul says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So the second point I want to make is that we need to view suffering as the pains of childbirth. Now, I look around, I've seen lots of ladies in our group who have all experienced childbirth. It'd be uh, remiss, it'd be uh, presumptuous of me to tell you what the pains of childbirth are like. But, and I don't know how, when you're going through the pains of childbirth, how you cope. I ask my wife how you deal with it. Um, but what we need to do is to recognise that there is a, that the pains of childbirth are something you go through in order to produce a very beneficial result. So somehow you've got to actually remind yourself as you go through that pain that, hey, this is only going to be for a season, and at the end of it, I'm going to have a lovely baby. Right? And so we've got to take a similar sort of attitude here towards suffering, that our suffering is only for a season, and the result of it is something that's far better. Uh, interesting, let's do two points about makes the pains of childbirth uh, uh, relevant in this discussion, is that the pains of childbirth come and go right, through the, through the labour, contractions. So they're very intense, but they're for a period, and then there's a lull. I think our sufferings in this life are a bit like that. Very rarely do you find people suffering consistently year in, year out. Sometimes they do, but generally speaking, it's an intense season of suffering followed by a lull. Right? So again, you know, that gives us time to, you know, if we're going through that lull period, it gives us time to, to consider, you know, that the significance of the, when, the, when the next bout of suffering might come. And the second thing is that the pains of childbirth grow in intensity as you approach the date of delivery, right? The final period is the most intense of all. And the, and the same, I think, is going to be true of us, that as we approach the day when Jesus returns, the pains, the sufferings of the church will increase. So we need to think of these, our suffering, view our sufferings as the pains of childbirth. Okay, next verse. Paul goes on to say, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, 
the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Again, some fairly complicated ideas only treated at the surface. But the general point here is that the Spirit of God is there to help us in our sufferings. Through prayer, through wordless groans, through intercession, um, we are not alone in our sufferings. The Spirit of God is there to help us with our sufferings. Uh, yep. So we need to understand the role of the Spirit in ministering to us through our sufferings. Go on. Here's where we get into verses which are familiar. And we know, says Paul, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Now, what's all things mean? All things means all these things, doesn't it? He doesn't mean all things general. He's talking very specifically, saying in all of these things, this life of suffering, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. How do we know he works for the good of us? Because those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So Paul is talking about here that there is a process going on that started with you being called. The fact that you are here, that you've responded to Christ, means that you've been called. Because you've been called, you've been predestined. Because of that, and what have you been predestined to? You've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I've got a lot of changing to go through to get there. Change is difficult. Change involves suffering. Right? There's a process going on, and I need to be conformed to the image of God. That's God's purpose. That's God's plan. And that is what it means for me to be glorified. So there's a process going on. Understand the process by which God is glorifying us. Right? Next slide. Paul then responds to this. And he says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And here we are in some very familiar territory. But again, it's in the context of suffering. Right? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall, and, the, and then he lists the sorts of persecutions and, and sufferings that he went through. So he says, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is taken for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. So Paul is saying here, essentially, when we go through suffering, especially when you suffer because of our identity with Christ, then all of heaven is backing us up. We're not alone. All of heaven is on our side. And nothing can actually separate us from the love of God. Right? 
And so finally we get to the last verse where he says, in all these, in all these things, so in all the suffering, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Think about his wording there. It says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. He doesn't say over all these things. He doesn't say we conquer by defeating our suffering so that we don't experience it anymore. He says, no, we defeat it by going through it. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How is that the case? Paul says, because I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. What's he saying there? He's saying, throw at me what you like, life. Throw at me trouble, persecution, peril. Throw at me even death. Throw me to the lions. I don't care because nothing is going to separate me from the love of God. That's what he's saying. We are more than conquerors in all these things because we know the love of Christ. Now, none of us have had to go through anything near the sort of suffering that Paul went through. I believe uh, in our lifetime, many of our younger folk will probably have to go through suffering more than those of us olders have. But we need to have the right attitudes. Go to the last slide. Let's summarise what we said there. How's it, what's our response? Consider how little our suffering is compared with the glory. View your suffering as the pains of childbirth for the glory coming. Understand the role of the Spirit. Understand the process by which we are being glorified. And that when we go through suffering, all heaven is on our side. And if we do all of this then we will know the love of God in such a powerful way that nothing that life throws at us will be able to conquer it. So, where do we go? Are we really going to live for the glory? Are you ready for the glory of God to be revealed in you? I talked last time I was speaking about the fact that we need to live for the glory of God. Paul says in black and white, if you're going to live for the glory of God, there will be suffering. Are we ready for it?